Well, let's turn in our Bibles to 1 Thessalonians. Today we are beginning our verse-by-verse study through the book of 1 Thessalonians, which will be followed immediately by a verse-by-verse study through the book of 2 Thessalonians. Imagine that. Now, if you're unfamiliar, this is very much a part of our philosophy of ministry as Calvary Chapel, that we teach through the Word, verse-by-verse, that we emphasize the teaching more than the maybe a, a topical series or something like that, because we believe the most important thing is for us to know the Word, because the Word is what's inspired and inerrant and infallible. And there's nothing wrong with giving topics and topical messages, and I do those too. But we always want the main diet of the church to be learning what the Bible says, learning what it means, learning how to study the Word together. That is so important, isn't it? Because there's so many folks around that want to get out their weird ideas and use the Bible to do it. Well, we've got to know the right and wrong way to handle the Scripture. So this is why we do it this way. And it also keeps us from skipping stuff. Do you know what I mean? You, you have that one passage that you'd just rather not talk about. You can only skip it for so long when you're teaching through the Word. And up to this point, as a church, we began in the Gospel of Luke, which is the longest book in the New Testament. <laughs> then we went to the book of Acts, which is the second longest book in the New Testament. So we're going on to First and Second Thessalonians for a couple reasons. First of all, because they're shorter, and I wanted us to make a little progress. And it's also looking at a different genre of literature in the Bible. We just read a psalm this morning, which of course is poetry. It's a psalm. We had Luke and Acts and Genesis, which are narratives. They tell stories. But 1 Thessalonians and the meat of most of the New Testament are epistles. They're letters that were written. And they're a little different from the narrative passages because when you read the stories, a lot of times you need to pull the lessons out of them almost by implication. It's going to tell you what David did. It's not necessarily going to tell you what it meant, or it's not going to give you the doctrinal lesson. Sometimes it does. The epistles are different. The epistles are teaching. They're straight up giving you what's called didactic information, or teaching information. And they're also very cool because they're addressing the personal concerns of the churches that were written to. So Romans is probably the best example we have of something that is not so much about a current situation. It's, it's Paul's systematic presentation of the gospel in the book of Romans. But all the other ones, Paul is writing what are called occasional letters, meaning there was an occasion, there was a reason that prompted him to write it. We've discussed how the book of Galatians was written before the Jerusalem Council had been held in Acts 15 because these Jews were following behind Paul and telling all these new Gentile Christians they needed to become Jews in order to complete their salvation. So Paul wrote the letter to the Galatians. So they're a, they're a very interesting part of the Bible. They're some of the most fun to teach and study for me, and I, I think they're a lot of fun to, to get into as well. But another reason why I picked First and Second Thessalonians is because the main doctrinal theme of First and Second Thessalonians, there's a ton in here, but the main doctrinal theme concerns eschatology. Eschatos in Greek means last. And ology is the study of. So eschatology is the study or the doctrine of last things. End times prophecy. First and second Thessalonians talk about that a lot. And all of the moral instruction and the explanation that Paul gives are tied to that in a lot of ways. 
And we're living at a time where there has been a lot of poor teaching circling around, especially the interweb, about prophetic revelation and what the Bible has to say about prophecies. And you know, if you look through history, just about any time there's been a major disruption, there has been a commensurate peak of interest in the prophetic passages of Scripture. I think that's totally appropriate. But what it shows is that we have a tendency to look at the events that we are facing as this is it. You know, and we want to see how does this, what's happening today, tie to what's going on in the scriptures. Now, the important thing to know is sometimes there may be an important connection. But many times, as Jesus told us in Matthew, there's no connection. And he told us not to be distressed about these things. But what always happens is you get Bible teachers that want to do these fanciful interpretations to connect whatever's happening in the news to what's going on in the Bible. And it becomes a theological excuse to talk about politics. So I would rather open up the Word and see what the Word has to say. And I think this will give us some good cautions because First and Second Thessalonians, if you want to get the main uh, instructional theme as concerns the end times, is chill out. <laughs> Chill out. It hasn't happened yet, and this is how we know. And Paul gives us some of the most important teaching we have about the rapture, the Antichrist, things like that. So we're going to get into this. But most of that comes at the end of 1 Thessalonians, and most of that is in 2 Thessalonians. So initially we give this warning, which is we want to look at what the scriptures has to say, not what the headlines have to say. Amen? Because there's always going to be a new headline. <laughs> But the word stands forever. Doesn't mean that we shouldn't be interested. It doesn't mean that we shouldn't care. I care very deeply, and I have very strong interpretive opinions that we're going to get to. But we need to make sure that we are grounding it, not only in what the word says about those things, but in how the word tells us to handle those things. Because the Bible has a lot more, believe it or not, to say about your attitude concerning the return of the Lord than it does about the details of the return of the Lord itself. Both are important. We cannot dismiss either one. So I'm very excited to get into these, these epistles. There's, there's stuff about virtue. There's admonitions about the gifts of the Holy Spirit in here. He talks about laziness, which those are going to be some fun verses to get into. Because a lot of people were saying, well, if the Lord's coming, what am I going to work for? And Paul's like, yeah, don't have anything to do with people like that. It's going to be a lot of fun to get into these. And today, we're going to focus primarily on the background and the context of the book of 1 Thessalonians. That is so important, we have to know it, because the letter was written to the Thessalonians. So it's important to know a little something about the Thessalonians. It's important to know what the book of Acts has to say about it, because all of that is going to inform not only the stories that Paul's going to tell in this book about his relationships with them, but it also informs how we understand the doctrine that Paul is going to reveal. It doesn't change what the doctrine means, but it helps us understand why did Paul choose this particular topic to write to this particular church. So I think you'll enjoy this today. I think it's a lot of fun to get into this stuff. We're going to cover three verses. Don't worry, it's only five chapter book. It's not going to take that long. Okay, let's read verse one. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy, to the church of the Thessalonians, in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ, grace to you and peace. This is a letter. We usually start our letters with the addressee. We say, Dear Johnny, or whoever we're writing to. And then we put the 
name of the person writing it at the end. They did the opposite of that. They began with the author, and then they went into the recipient. And he says they're writing to the church of the Thessalonians. A Thessalonian is somebody who comes from Thessalonica. Now, Thessalonica, we've talked about before, is a port city in what is called the Thermaic Gulf in the northwestern part of the Aegean Sea. So the Aegean Sea, up towards the north, into the west, there's a gulf called the Thermaic Gulf, and that's where Thessalonica is. Not only is it a major port city, it's at the intersection of four major ancient roads. So not only could the ships land there, but if you landed at Thessalonica, you could get just about anywhere from there. It was called the Metropolis of Macedonia. It was a city that had between 100,000 and 200,000 people. Well, that's a big city now, but back then, that was a huge city. And even to this day, its pronunciation has changed a little bit, but Thessaloniki is the second largest city in Greece. It has been inhabited for thousands of years, and it still is the country of Greece's primary port. So most of their shipments are going to come through Thessaloniki, Thessalonica, as it's called in the New Testament. Over one million people live there now. So... In that sense, it hasn't really changed very much. And I'm going to get a little here into the history of Thessalonica because I think it, it explains so much the character of this town. And it also sheds light on why it, things went the way they did when Paul showed up. The city of Thessalonica was founded in 316 B.C. by a man named Cassander. Cassander was a general in Alexander the Great's army. He was also married to Alexander's half-sister, so the brother-in-law of Alexander the Great. He founded it. His wife's name was Thessalonike, so like a good husband, he named his city after his wife, Thessalonica. And it was established as the capital city of the kingdom of Macedonia. For 150 years, it was the primary city for this kingdom until 168 B.C. when Rome came a-knocking. Three different wars. It took three wars for Rome to conquer Thessalonica, but they did. And they divided the, the kingdom into four different provinces, and something very interesting happened at this point. After 20 years of Roman rule, the grandson of the king who had been defeated by Rome... His name was Andriscus. He staged a revolt. He said, we're going to take back our city. We're going to take back our kingdom. And I'm going to go to the throne like Aragorn from Lord of the Rings. But guess what happened? The Thessalonians sided with Rome rather than their former king. And for doing that, it was made the capital of the province in 149 BC. And we're going to see this a couple times now. Thessalonica had a knack for choosing winners in the wars that they fought. You might know some of this history. In 44 BC, Julius Caesar was assassinated. He was the last leader of the Roman Republic, and it led to a brutal civil war. And it was between two generals, Octavian and Mark Antony, and Brutus and Cassius. If you know your Shakespeare, you might be familiar with some of those names. Thessalonica was asked by both sides to be an ally, they sided with Octavian and Mark Antony. Good choice, because they're the ones that won that battle. And then, now it's between Octavian and Mark Antony. They again sided with Octavian. Again, a great choice, because Octavian would become the first emperor of Rome, the Roman Empire. He would be called Caesar 
Augustus. We know we refer to somebody as an August person. It's, it's very dignified, very royal. It's the idea of all authority under me. So they picked a winner. And for that, they were made what was called a free city. This means that they were part of the empire, they were under Roman rule, but Rome would keep no soldiers there, and Rome would allow them to govern themselves according to their ancient traditions. It was the most liberty anybody could have and still be under the thumb of Rome. But it's so interesting to me to see this because the Thessalonians were proud to be Romans. Even though they were not ethnically Roman, they were proud to be a part of the empire. They were had history going all the way back, casting off their own king Andriscus to follow Rome, siding with Caesar Augustus when he was establishing the empire. How different is that to what we read about in the Gospels when Jesus is in Judea, when you have the zealots? We talked about the Sicarii, right, that would hold the daggers in their robes, ready for a revolution at a moment's notice. Should we pay taxes to Caesar or not? when he sends Pontius Pilate down to brutally put down the Jews for their revolution. Well, Paul comes around to Thessalonica, and these people are proud to be Roman. They're excited to be part of the empire. They had a prominent temple in Thessalonica for the worship of Caesar. They had a prominent religion in town where they worshipped the goddess Rome. So not only were they loyal to Rome and loyal to Caesar, they quite literally worshipped Rome and worshipped Caesar. Worlds away from Jerusalem. And yet that's where God was going to send his apostle to the Gentiles. It's important for us to know this because of what happened when Paul came there. When Paul was on his second missionary journey, if you remember this, he wanted to go into Asia Remember, Asia is not the continent Asia. This is the province Asia, where Ephesus was, Colossae, Laodicea, all those churches we read about in Revelation. But it says the Spirit forbade him from going there. So then he says, well, I'm going to go north. I'm going to go to Bithynia. I'm going to go up into what are now Slavic territories. And again, the Lord said no. So they go to Troas, which is a port city, just figuring we'll wait in the airport until we know what our destination is. And in Acts 16.9, Paul has a dream where he saw a Macedonian man saying, come over to Macedonia and help us. Well, that's, that's as good an instruction as you're ever going to get from the Lord. So they sailed at once. And their first stop, you know, was in Philippi. Paul planted the church in Lydia's house, who was the seller of purple that he met at the river. But this is when he was beaten and they were jailed for casting the demon out of the girl who was the oracle in town. Do you remember that story? And this is when they were put in prison and they were singing the hymns. And in the middle of the night, the Lord sent an earthquake and set them all free. Their next stop was Thessalonica. So if you keep your finger in 1 Thessalonians and you turn to the left a little ways, let's go back to Acts chapter 17. And we're going to read these nine verses. This is the whole account of what happened in the city of Thessalonica when they got there. It says, Now when they had passed through Amphipolis and Apollonia, they came to Thessalonica, where there was a synagogue of the Jews. And Paul went in, as was his custom, and on three Sabbath days he reasoned with them from the Scriptures, explaining and proving that it was necessary for the Christ to suffer and to rise from the dead, and saying, This Jesus whom I proclaim to you is the Christ. And some of them were persuaded and joined Paul and Silas, as did a great many of the devout Greeks and not a few of the leading women. But the Jews were jealous 
and taking some wicked men of the rabble, they formed a mob, set the city in an uproar, and attacked the house of Jason, seeking to bring them out to the crowd. And when they could not find them, they dragged Jason and some of the brothers before the city authorities, saying, These men who have turned the world upside down have come here also. And Jason has received him, and they are all acting against the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king, Jesus. And the people and the city authorities were disturbed when they heard these things. And when they had taken money as security from Jason and the rest, they let them go. Paul did not have a calm ministry in Thessalonica. And it was cut short because of persecution. So we saw Paul began in the synagogue. He always did this. He says the gospel is to the Jew first and also to the Greek. And he taught there for three weeks, giving what was probably his standard teaching about Jesus Christ being the Son of God, being the Messiah that had been promised in the Scriptures. And there becomes a break, as there always was, between the Jews who believed in him and the Jews who did not. And what always caused conflict is that all of these Gentile, what were called God-fearers, meaning they had not been circumcised and become Jews, but they still worshipped the, the same Lord they did, all those folks start going with Paul. So all of their dignified citizens, the leading women who had a position in the city and, and gave authority to that synagogue, they're gone, and they're off with Paul now. And that became a point of conflict. It doesn't tell us how long they were in Thessalonica. It says he taught in the synagogue for three weeks. So it was at least that long, but it was probably a little longer. Philippians 4.16, Paul will write to them and thank them for supporting him in Thessalonica. They sent at least two gifts to Paul there. So obviously it was long enough for that to take place. But we're going to see as we read through 1 Thessalonians that Paul was distressed that he had to leave because he felt he had to leave prematurely. He said, I didn't get to stay long enough to instruct you in the faith. And this would be Paul's concern. He says, what's going to happen to these guys? They're being persecuted and I'm not there to help them. So it couldn't have been very long that Paul was there. But the Jews formed a mob. They dragged Jason, who was the, their host, one of the Christians that was housing them, to what it says, the city authorities. These were the politarchs, which is unique because, again, they were allowed to govern themselves. And they accused them, that famous verse, of turning the world upside down. And what did they say? Did you see that accusation? They are speaking against the decrees of Caesar, saying there is another king. We know the history of the Thessalonians. They were Roman, and they were proud to be Roman. They were excited. They had a history of loyalty to Caesar. And here comes Paul talking about King Jesus. It was actually forbidden under some Roman emperors for anybody to prophesy anything about the king, the emperor. Even the, the soothsayers they had and the prophets that would read the omens and read the entrails of the animals and things, they weren't allowed to say anything about Caesar because it might imply that Caesar would die. And if you imply that Caesar would die, that would imply another king, which was a threat to their sovereignty. Well, here comes Paul talking about another king. And it got them angry. Although it was really the Jews that were jealous, but they knew exactly where to turn the screws on the Thessalonians to get them mad. Isn't that how the devil does it? He, he knows exactly what to do, where to push to make the persecution seem justified. So they leave. They, they go to Berea. Which, Berea is interesting because it's off the beaten path, and it's not very far. We get the idea that Paul was planning to sneak back to Thessalonica as soon as he could, but the Thessalonian Jews pursued them to Berea, started another riot, and Paul had to sail alone for Athens, 
and he didn't stay in Athens very long. He went down to Corinth. Now, after that episode, we don't read about Thessalonica in the book of Acts again, except for a brief mention in Acts chapter 20. This is when Paul is gathering together that financial gift that he's going to take to the Jews in Jerusalem. And it says he went through the churches in Macedonia, and that Aristarchus and Secondus, who were Thessalonians, accompanied him. You remember Aristarchus. He was one of the two with Luke who accompanied Paul on the, that treacherous journey to Rome and when they were shipwrecked. That was the Thessalonian that was with him on that boat. So when did this letter get written? This is the story. But we see in Acts 18.5 that Silas and Timothy finally joined Paul in Corinth. And that is where we believe the correspondence began. It was when Paul was in Corinth after he left Athens, been driven out of Berea. That's when he wrote these letters. And we can tell this because I'm going to read a little section from 1 Thessalonians 3 here. We'll get to it in a few weeks. But he's telling the story of what happened and kind of explaining himself for leaving so abruptly. He says, Therefore, when we could bear the separation no longer, we were willing to be left behind at Athens alone. And we sent Timothy, our brother and God's co-worker in the gospel of Christ, to establish and exhort you in your faith. So he's saying, while I was hanging out in Athens, I made sure that Timothy went back to Thessalonica. But now that Timothy has come to us from you, verse 6, and has brought us the good news of your faith and love, and reported that you always remember us kindly and long to see us, as we long to see you, for this reason, brothers, in all our distress and affliction, we have been comforted about you through your faith. So it seems that Paul went to Athens, Silas probably stayed in Berea, but Timothy was sent to sneak back into Thessalonica and check on the church. Paul ended up in Corinth. He didn't stay in Athens very long. There wasn't a very big open door for him. But while he's in Corinth, Timothy shows up. He's been worried about these Thessalonians for so long. Timothy shows up and says, don't worry, they're standing firm. They have not capitulated, and they're not mad at you, Paul. You ever have to do something and you had no choice, but you're afraid that you might have hurt somebody you love? And you're like, oh, I hope they're not mad. I really didn't mean it that way. Well, Paul has all that relief come flooding over him. Okay, we're still good. And so what he does is he writes 1 Thessalonians, tells Timothy, get back on that boat and get back up there. <laughs> he writes the letter to make sure they know, I didn't abandon you. I'm overjoyed to find that you're doing well. And it's also answering some doctrinal questions. Maybe not some explicit ones, but Timothy is, is sharing how they were feeling. And later in the book, we're going to see they were concerned that those in their church who had died would miss the rapture would miss the return of the Lord. They had this idea that if we're not alive when Jesus comes back, we're not going to get to live forever with him. And so Paul writes back to alleviate that concern. And then when Timothy comes back, the Thessalonians are going to have more questions about the return of the Lord. So he's going to send 2 Thessalonians up to him. So you see how this worked. This is where these letters came in. Which means they were written during Paul's 18-month stay in Corinth. That's what Paul wanted to do in Thessalonica. He wanted to stay a long time. Didn't get that chance. And we know from Acts 18.12 that when Paul was in Corinth, there was a man named Gallio who became proconsul. And we know from history that happened in 51 AD. So this is one of the few books of the New Testament. We can nail the date down almost exactly. 1st and 2nd Thessalonians would have been written around 50 A.D. That's pretty special. That's 20 years after Jesus died and rose again. This is not very long. 
Everybody wants to go, well, the doctrine seems rather developed in Paul's letters, so it had to have been written much, much later. Well, no, we know that Paul wrote it when Gallio was proconsul, and we know when he was proconsul. So 1st and 2nd Thessalonians were written circa 50 AD, making them Paul's first letters other than Galatians. It's pretty cool to know that. And some people would even want to put Galatians later. I, I disagree with that. Not a big deal. But they were either his first or his second and third letters that he wrote. And we know now the circumstances under which he wrote them. But getting back to our text here, let's start to break it down. We know when this was written. We know why it was written and to whom. Let's look at the authors here. Paul, Silvanus, and Timothy. Note, by the way, this was not Paul alone. Paul gets credit for writing all of these New Testament letters, even though in most of them he had a co-author. That's another thing that people tend to forget because they say, well, in this letter, Paul's style is so different from this letter, he must not have written it. Well, he had help from different people in these different letters. It just makes sense. So as we go through this, we can tell that Paul is the primary author. So as I describe it, I will say Paul says or Paul did. But when I say that, you need to remember that it's not just Paul. It's also Silvanus. It's also Timothy. We know Paul. Paul was formerly Saul of Tarsus, the persecutor of the church. The Lord knocked him off his donkey when he was on his way to Damascus and said, why are you persecuting me? And he converted. He was exiled in Tarsus for a long time until Barnabas brought him back and set him up in Antioch. He was sent out a missionary from there, and you know he became God's apostle to the Gentiles. Who is Silvanus? This is Silas. It's a different version of the same name. I, I maybe have mentioned this before. Luke used people's nicknames a lot. He didn't use everybody's formal names. He used Barnabas. That was not his real name. His real name was Joseph. He used Barnabas. Priscilla. The name is Prissa. They would add Illa, kind of like we add E to the name of something. So instead of calling her Prissa, it's, oh, Priscilla, like Prissy. And then when he refers to Silas, he doesn't call him Silvanus, which is his full name. He calls him Silas. This is the same guy. He was one of the prophets that was sent to Antioch to deliver the decision of the Jerusalem council in Acts 15. And he ended up staying there, and he went with Paul on his second missionary journey when Paul and Barnabas had a separation. And we also see that in 1 Peter 5.12, he helped Peter write 1 Peter as well. Pretty cool. And of course, we know Timothy. He was from Lystra. He was the young man who was so well spoken of. He got saved on Paul's first missionary journey, raised by his mother Eunice and his grandmother Lois in the scriptures. His father was a Greek, and we don't read much about him. We get the idea that his father wasn't around. So Paul took him under his wing. He brought him with him on his second journey and his third journey, and all the journeys after that, until eventually he became the pastor of the church in Ephesus. Which you know, that church had a special place in Paul's heart, which tells you how highly he thought of Timothy. And that's why we have the letters written to him in First and Second Timothy. And we also see at the end of a bunch of these letters, Timothy is always in and out. They're telling what Timothy's doing. Hebrews tells us Timothy was imprisoned at one point. And Paul was always encouraging Timothy to be brave, now, you usually don't tell courageous people, be brave. Timothy was probably a little timid, but he was mightily used of the Lord. And he was one of those who carried on the gospel and the tradition past the years of the apostles. So these are our authors, Paul, Silvanus, or Silas, and Timothy. 
And they write to the church of the Thessalonians. We just talked about them. In God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. Now that refers to the church there. They are a church. That word for church in Greek, you probably know this, is ekklesia. It just means gathering. And it came to have a special, unique meaning for us, which is a gathering of Christians. But Paul specifies here, to the ecclesia in God the Father and the Lord Jesus Christ. You're not just some group of people. We here are not just some group of people. We are gathered around the worship of God and His Son, Jesus Christ. And because this group of men is united under the gospel, they believe together that God sent His Son who made atonement for sin. He can wish them at the end of verse 1, Grace and peace. That phrase, grace to you and peace, is in almost every one of the New Testament books. It's in all of Paul's letters. It's in both of Peter's letters. It's even in the book of Revelation, which itself was a big, long letter. <laughs> grace, the Greek word charis. Peace is the word irene. It's where we get the name Irene from. Maybe you've heard an irenic message is a message that's trying to make peace between people. Charis is also where we get the word for gift. You're gracing somebody with something. It's where we get the word charismatic from. That they are very gifted, we would say. And it's, it's very cool because the Greek way to say hello was kairē. It was like aloha. It could mean hello. It could mean goodbye. It's just a way of saying hi. And of course, you know, the Hebrew greeting was what? Shalom, which means peace. So it's cool because we have the Greek greeting and the Jewish greeting put together throughout the New Testament, grace and peace. Very cool. And also there's, there's a, you could preach just that, couldn't you? He's saying we have peace with God because of the grace from God. And this is how Paul greets them. Grace and peace. You could even say that because of what the Lord has done, we can have grace towards each other and peace with each other, can't we? I love it. Grace to you and peace. Even between really patriotic traditional Jews and really patriotic Roman subjects. Because if they have Jesus in common, those differences don't really matter very much anymore, do they? Verse 2. We give thanks to God always for all of you, constantly mentioning you in our prayers, going to verse 3, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. Verses 2 and 3 in the Greek are one sentence. Obviously, the English punctuation is part of the translation, but it's one long sentence. And the ESV actually for the sake of clarity, has adjusted the word order. When we speak English, word order matters. You know, where you put the word in the sentence is significant. Not so much in Greek, because the language conjugates so much, they would move words around in order to emphasize things. They'd put God at the end in order to bring home God the Father. Or whatever sometimes was the most important thing would go in the middle of the sentence. And the word order has very little to do with the meaning. So, we're going to break this down and you're going to see some of that. But he says, we give thanks to God always for all of you. There's a prayer for the church. A lot of Paul's epistles have prayers for the church at the beginning of them. And this is no exception. He says, we give thanks to God always for all of you constantly. That word constantly in the original text is actually at the beginning of verse 3. It's the first word there. It's adialeptos. It means without lacking, without failing. We never forget. And they move it 
to that section because it, it goes well with the first part and it makes better sense in English, but it really applies to the whole sentence here. Everything they're doing in verses 2 and 3, they're doing constantly, without fail, without lack. Adialeptos. We don't stop, we don't forget. Giving thanks to God always for all of you. That's the hard part sometimes, right? I'll give thanks to God for most of you. I used to say that to the high school students all the time, and they were so insecure, it was hilarious. I would just say, I'd say, I'm going to miss some of you when you graduate. What do you mean, some of you? Which ones are, which ones are you going to miss? And I always used to tease them. But Paul says, always for all of you. He says, mentioning you in our prayers. Literally there he says, we are making mention or making memory of you when they pray. They're calling them to mind. They get spoken of in their prayers. This is what we call the ministry of intercession. Now, we know what to intercede means. Intercede means to go between. You ever have two friends that were fighting, and you're the go-between? <laughs> he says, well, she says she's not talking to you until you apologize. She says she's not going to talk to you until you apologize. Well, you can tell her that I'm not apologizing until she gives it back, and then you're kind of going back and forth, but maybe less petty. That's intercession, going between, going to God on behalf of somebody else. You can pray for other people. Isn't that cool? The Lord doesn't go, nope, stay in your lane. Pray for yourself. <laughs> Intercede. We have a responsibility to pray for those, especially those who are under our care. If you have any kind of authority as a husband, as a parent, as a boss, as a pastor, you have a biblical mandate to pray for those that are under your care. 1 Samuel 12, 23, this is when Israel rejected Samuel and said, we want a king instead. And Samuel said, fine, you're going to get a king, but you're not going to like it. And then the Lord sent thunder and lightning to let them know he didn't like it very much either. And they said, we're so sorry, Samuel. And he says in 1 Samuel 12, 23, Moreover, as for me, far be it from me that I should sin against the Lord by ceasing to pray for you. It would be wrong, he says, for me to stop praying for you. Even though they just said, we don't want you and we don't like your kids. We want a king instead. You read the story, that's what they said. They said, you're old and your kids are corrupt. We want a king. And it broke Samuel's heart. But he said, I'm not stopping praying for you. That'd be a sin to stop praying for you. When we pray for those that we love, we can affect them in ways that our words just can't. You ever reach a point with somebody where you've told them something so many times, they're not listening. They're no longer hearing a word you have to say. All I can do is pray. Not all you can do. That, that is the best thing you could do. That's the most effective thing you could do is to pray. Samuel knew it would be wrong for him to do that. And you know who our great intercessor is? The Lord Jesus Christ himself. Hebrews 7.25 says, He is able to save to the uttermost those who draw near to God through him since he always lives to make intercession for them. Jesus' primary duty right now is interceding for you and for me. And there's a passage in Romans 8 that tells us that the Holy Spirit prays for us too. Intercession. Hudson Taylor, when he was asked how he had such an effective ministry in China, he said, it is possible to move men for God through prayer alone. 18th century guy going to China. No Rosetta Stone, you know, no airplanes. He just had to get over there and start preaching the gospel. He says, but prayer works. Prayer matters. George Mueller, who of course believed in the power of prayer in an amazing way, 
He picked out five of his friends that he wanted to be saved. And he started praying for them every day to be saved. Some of them got saved rather quickly. Then he starts to get to the end of his life. And in one of his things he preaches, he says, I've prayed 63 years for this man. He's not saved yet, but he will be. One of them was led to the Lord towards the very end of his life. One of them was led to the Lord at his funeral. And another one was saved shortly after that. Because you don't think he stopped praying when he got to heaven, do you? He's like, oh, now I can really get down to business. Prayer, intercession, it matters. Paul had been separated from the Thessalonians, but through his prayers, he was able to continue to take care of them. Prayer is not just for you, you know. We read about all the powerful things that prayer can do, and we're like, I'm going to start praying for stuff. Good. But don't just pray for yourself. Pray for the person that you've given up on. When we pray, man, when you come to the Lord and you say, God, this person, they won't pray for themselves. I'll pray for them. The Lord hears that. And then somebody goes, I don't know, just one day I woke up and I was, I was listening and I was ready to do what God said. You didn't just one day wake up. There was a battle raging for your soul through somebody who loves you. You might not even remember them. You might not even know their name. You ever have a moment where you're just thinking about somebody out of the blue and you just get the urge and the impulse to pray for them? You better listen to those because you have a God who speaks to you. If you've ever woken up in the middle of the night and you're thinking about somebody, pray for them. It doesn't hurt anything, and you could just be saving their life. The Lord might be rousing you up like he roused Daniel a couple times and said, get up and pray because they're going through it right now. This is a defining moment in their life. They're out with that person they shouldn't be out with. They're going that way. They're getting drunk. They're doing whatever it is, and tonight's their night. You've got to pray for them. I can't wait till we get to heaven and we get to see how our prayers affected each other's lives. It's going to be awesome. Intercede for one another. It's what Paul did. Giving thanks, making mention constantly. And in verse 3, remembering before our God and Father your work of faith and labor of love and steadfastness of hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. He said in verse 2, they were making mention. And then here he says they were remembering. This is actually using the same word there, meneon. It's where we get our word mnemonic from. You ever wonder why there's a weird N in that word? Mnemonic, it comes from this Greek word, meneon. So he says we are making mention and we are remembering. The idea is we think about you all all the time. We're always calling your memory to mind. And that phrase there, before our God and Father in the Greek, is at the end of this verse. So we would say, remembering your work and your labor and your steadfastness in the Lord before our God and Father. But it, it all ties back. They're remembering it before the Lord. When they come before God, they don't forget to mention the Thessalonians. Now, what was it about these guys that made them so worthy of Paul's attention? God's grace and peace. Well, he runs through these three virtues here. I'm sure you picked up on it. Faith, love, and hope, and the fruit that it produces. You remember 1 Corinthians 13, 13. So now faith, hope, and love abide, but the greatest of these is what? Love. You get that triad a lot in the New Testament. And you know, today we've gotten a lot of information, you know, a lot of head knowledge. I realize that. And we need to do that because it's important for us to properly understand this book. But let's let this be our take-home for the week. We're going to break these things down. And this is the thing that you can grab and put in your pocket and pull out as you're going about your week or going about your day today. He says, your work of faith, your labor of love, and your steadfastness of hope. Not to bore you with the grammar, but it's what's called a genitive of production. What it means is you would understand this as your work that has been produced by faith, your labor that has been produced by love, 
and your steadfastness that has been produced by hope. He's talking about not just the virtues, faith, hope, and love, but the fruit of those things and what those things produce. So with that understanding in mind, let's break these down as we come to the end here. Paul remembered first their work of faith. You could read that as the work which is the fruit of your faith. Now, what work is that? Well, it just, it just means work. The word is ergon. It's where we get the word ergonomic from, or energi, energy. Good works. The righteous deeds that you're supposed to perform as a Christian. Isn't that interesting that right here, Paul has no problem tying works and faith together, as we shouldn't either. If we have a poor grasp of the scriptures, we will either despise faith or we'll despise works. Neither one of them is good to despise. We believe in salvation by grace through faith, but we also believe, as it says in Ephesians, we were created in Christ Jesus for what? Good works. He's saying if you have true faith, the fruit of that seed you planted is going to be good works. There's going to be work that comes from faith. So to say, ridiculous, believing in faith just means you're not going to do anything and it's a cop-out. Well, that's not true. Or to say, if you try to do righteous deeds because you love Jesus so much, you've got a gospel of works. No, that's not true either. It all works together. He's saying if you truly believe that you've been bought with the blood of Christ and you've been delivered from your sin, you're not going back to that stuff you were delivered from. You break the chains of a slave, he's not going to get right back to carrying the big heavy rocks. Say, hey, you're free. Yeah, I'm free. I'm free to carry these rocks. No, you're not. You're still a slave. The chains might look broken, but you're still doing the same stuff. A slave is going to get up and run. To run towards freedom, it's the same thing for us. If you've truly been set free by the Lord, you are going to run for his righteousness. It'll be a delight for you to do the right thing. Remember when Naaman, remember the story when Naaman the leper went to see Elisha and Elisha told him to bathe in the Jordan River seven times and he was healed of his leprosy. He came back and he had all these gifts that he had brought with him and he wanted to give them to Elisha and Elisha said, no, no, man, it's free. No, I'm not charging you. you. You go on home. And then Elisha's servant ran out and said, hey, on second thought, can we just get a little bit of it? And he wanted to take some of the treasure for himself. And it says, Naaman gave them to him gladly. Now, the servant shouldn't have done that, but you can see that Naaman had received a free gift, but it was a delight for him to give back if it had been asked of him. Because he's like, after what you did for me, how could I give anything less? Same thing for us. If Christ has saved our souls, we should be ecstatic that we get to work in his service. Have you ever been thinking about right and wrong? And you ever had one of those thoughts where you go, what's the point? You ever say, well, what's the point? You know, it's like that psalm we read a few weeks ago. He's like, I've kept my hands clean in vain. Or you hear some philosopher on TV talking about, I don't really see the point of doing the right thing because we're all just going to die someday anyway. Guess what? As a Christian, that problem is solved for you. Why would I do the right thing? Because Jesus died for me. Jesus gave me a new life. I'm set free. I'm not bound to my drives and impulses anymore. So you better believe that I'm going to do the right thing now. Titus 2.14 says, Jesus Christ gave himself for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify for himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good works. Hey, are you zealous for good works? Are you excited to do good things? Are you excited to find out the next righteous thing you can do? You ever met somebody like that? They've always got one idea, another thought. Everything you bring up, they're like, hey, you know what? We could do that for the Lord, too. That's zealous for good works. Now, faith comes first. You always have to have faith first. 
Works can't produce faith. Because if it's all about doing the right thing, faith just gets in the way. But if you have true saving faith, it works. You have no doubt that you've got to do what the Lord has said. And it's not under compulsion. His commands are not burdensome. It's a joy. Remember when you first got saved, how excited you were to start going to church? How excited you were to start sharing the gospel and reading your Bible and tithing and all that stuff? Oh, this is so cool! And then you get old and you get jaded and you're like, oh, why does the service have to be at 9.30? Why can't it just be at 10? I was watching the game last night and now I'm tired. Maybe you need to pray for the Lord to restore to you that attitude. The work of faith. Number two, your labor of love. You ever wonder where we get that English idiom from? It comes from here. So, remember, genitive of production, labor which is the fruit of love. The kind of labor that love produces. If you plant a seed of love, it's going to grow a tree that has labor on it. Fruit. That word labor, it's kapos. It's really the same thing as works. There's not really a split difference here. But it's less a sense of working and doing moral things. It's, it's the toil of sacrifice on another person's behalf. And that love, that word love, you know it. That's agape. If you know one Greek word, you've got to know that one. Agape. That unconditional, godly love. Not just for God, but for each other. And I think that's what he's referring to here. Your labor of love for one another. And even for those who are not in the flock yet, but might be. If you truly love the body of Christ, and you truly love the lost, you're not just going to sit back and think about it. That, that's like a Buddhist thing. Like, I'm going to meditate on virtue and how wonderful it would be for me to be a loving person. Christianity's not that way. We say, get up and go love somebody. <laughs> go labor in love. Go out and do the work to love them. You'll get to work in meeting somebody else's needs, helping each other run the race in steadfastness. Now, there are some folks nobody in this fine congregation, who want to separate the work of ministry from a love for the body of Christ. When you get grouchy when somebody messes up that stack of papers that you straightened up. You know what? This church looked fine until all these people came into it. <laughs> Why won't these people pay attention to me while I'm preaching? I worked hard on this message. Or you're singing, you're leading worship, and people aren't just getting into it, and you start getting angry. Now you want to rebuke the church. Oh, I've been there. Believe me, I've been there. I've done it in the right attitude, and I've done it in the wrong attitude, and I had to apologize. You can't separate the work of ministry for the love of the body of Christ. Well, I love Jesus. I just can't stand his people. Okay, if you ever come to me and say, Tyler, I love you, but I hate your kids. We're not friends. That's not a nice thing to say. We're the bride of Christ. You know, you don't get to go, you know what, dude? You're my best friend. I'd do anything for you, but I can't stand your wife. That's not a nice thing to say, but we'll come to the Lord and say, I love Jesus. I hate the church. What? It's God's church. It's his people. They're full of his spirit. You can't separate the two. Now, sometimes you've got a lot of love going and you need to get to work. Other times you've got a lot of work going and you've lost that love, not just for the Lord, but for each other. And then what people will do is, well, I better stop serving that. No, 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 no. Stay working hard. That's how the devil gets us out of ministry. If you realize that your attitude stinks, you say, well, I better quit until my attitude's right again. No, keep working. Does that work with your boss? You know, boss, I know I was supposed to have that on your desk by Friday, but I realized around Thursday, 
my attitude was just not in a good place. <laughs> and, you know, I, I knew that it wasn't going to be worthy of, of this job, so I figured I'd rather not do it at all, and I better just take a break. That doesn't fly. Like in Malachi, it says, offer that to your governor and see if he'll accept that from you. You say, Lord, I'm going to keep working, but you've got to change my heart. Start praying for the people you're serving. You're setting up chairs. Start praying for the people that are going to sit in those chairs. When you've got to go teach those kids, maybe you're thinking, oh, man, Micah's going to be in that class. That kid's a little, he's a little tornado, man. Just, just start praying for those kids. Lord, give me grace and give me patience and help me love them. It's really hard to hate somebody when you've prayed for them a long time. Galatians 6.2 says, Bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ. If you truly love the Lord and his church, you're going to get to work. There are things that money will not motivate. Every one of us has a limit of what you do for money in this room. You ever say this? You couldn't pay me to do that. If you've ever quit a job and they offered you a raise and you're like, not on your life, pal. I'm not sticking here another day. And I could stand up here and shame you, but even still, there's things that shame will not stimulate. You're just going to sit here and yell at me. I'm just going to leave. That way I don't have to listen to you anymore. But if you fall in love with somebody, you'll do anything for that person. I'm not just talking about romantic love. When you have serious love for somebody, you're willing to take those midnight phone calls. You're willing to get up and go help them. You're willing to hold them when they're crying. You're willing to go out and, and change a tire on their car without grumbling about it because you love them. The labor of love. Well, I'm having a hard time drumming up love. Hey, get to work and the rest will follow. I promise. Third and finally, Paul remembers their steadfastness of hope. The steadfastness, which is the fruit of hope. Plant a seed of hope and it's going to create a tree that has steadfastness as its fruit. Hupamane. It means endurance. I kind of wish they had chosen that word endurance, but it's okay. The ability to keep going in the same direction, even when things get very, very hard. That's endurance. Every one of us had one of those guys on our team that refused to do the conditioning work and was no good after the first quarter was over. No endurance. Very flashy, maybe very talented, but no endurance. The Lord wants us to have steadfastness of hope. And hope what? He says, hope in our Lord Jesus Christ. This is not just some abstract hope. You know, the world will talk about, oh, keep the faith. I'm like, what faith? Well, you know, just faith. <laughs> we got to have hope. Hope what? Well, hope that things will get better. Well, why, why do you have hope that things will get better? Well, I just think they will. Well, you don't know that. There's, there's no reason for your hope. I have a reason for my hope. Because Jesus Christ died on the cross and rose again, and he said, I'm coming back. He's kept every word he said up till now, so my hope will not disappoint me, the Bible says. The hope of eternity with Christ. The hope of heaven, but you all know it's not just heaven as we think of it. It's hope of the millennial kingdom where we're going to rule and reign with Christ as priests unto our God. And then the hope of a new heaven and a new earth. That's what I'm excited about. Because you know what the Bible tells us about that? Nothing. That's pretty cool. It's going to be new. No more sin, no more devil, just God's people in a brand new world. That's our hope. Hope of being separated from pain and sorrow forever. How would you like to serve the Lord and not be tempted to sin? Whew, wouldn't that be awesome? Willingness. When you have that as your hope, you're willing to endure this life. I can put up with what the world throws at me because I know where I'm going. And then in the grand scheme of things, this life is so short. It's not that long. High schoolers love to tease middle schoolers. 
Because high school is four years and middle school is three. So, oh, it's, school is so hard, it takes forever. It's like, y'all don't even know. You have one less year. It's so short. <laughs> you know, when I started having kids, I've had thousands upon thousands and myriads of myriads tell me, enjoy it while they're young. It goes so fast. You're right. It's very true. But you know what? It's the same thing with the life you're living right now. It goes so fast. You wake up one day and you say, wow, that was decades ago. I'm starting to say things like, wow, that was, uh, that was been 15 years ago. I'm like, how old am I? <laughs> I can remember things that were 20 years ago. Life goes fast. But it's sometimes all we can see, but we've got to remember the hope. And life is hard. Let's just, we, life is hard. The Bible does not shy away from that fact. We are blessed and we love the Lord, but life is hard. Jacob would say, short and full of trouble have been my years. And sometimes we can say, yep, that feels like me. But we know something better is on the way. So we can endure what the world throws at us. We have steadfastness in our hope. If you get too focused on the here and now, then you, you, can, you can break. The world will break you. Because you keep on waiting for your great life to come, and then you can spend years doing that. When you're a kid, like, well, one day when I get out from this house and I'm not with my parents anymore, things will be better. Okay, well, once I, once I find a husband, once I find a wife, it'll be better. Well, once we get kids, or once, once the kids are moved out, once we retire, you, you do that your whole life because you're not looking forward to anything. So when you know you've got something incredible coming, you can savor and enjoy and really endure everything you're facing. But if this is your only hope and that hope doesn't live up, it will break you right in half. Happens every day. COVID has broken some people. It has broken them because this is all they think they've got. And now they've just lost everything because of a sickness that blew through. The economy went through all its mess and everything else going on. So they're like, well, what's left then? You and I go, well, you know what? This was a shame, but we're sojourners. We don't live here. We do not minimize and we're not being flippant with the pain of the world. We just have a different perspective. And if you, all you think about, here's what happens. Steve and I were having this conversation in the car yesterday. If you're one of those people, when you don't have stuff and things aren't going well, you're right up next to Jesus, but the second you get a blessing, you let him go and you go this way, how dare you? You're focused on this life. Well, Lord, I don't have any money. Oh, look, I have money. Thanks, Jesus. I'll see you later. You're like the prodigal son. I'm going to spend it and I'll come back when I have nothing. That's not right. And you know what? It's, it's really strange. You say, well, I just want to live life to the fullest. When you abandon Christ, you have less capacity to enjoy the life that he's given to you. Because you, there's now all of a sudden so much pressure on you to get it right. And if it doesn't live up, then you get angry and you get bitter at people. And you start looking for somebody to blame. And people get hurt. Paul says in Romans 5, 3 through 5, We rejoice in our sufferings. Rejoice because of our sufferings? No in our sufferings. We laugh in the face of suffering, knowing that suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope, and our hope does not put us to shame, because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. Hope that does not put us to shame. You ever see somebody driving around with a bumper sticker of the candidate that lost a few elections ago? It's always kind of funny, isn't it? It's like, yeah, that's hope that disappointed. And they all, every, it doesn't matter if you're running for like the, some fifth party thing and you've got 20 people, they always introduce them, the next president of the United States. Nope. 
That's hope that disappointed. But our hope won't disappoint because it's God. It's Jesus Christ. It's the Holy Spirit speaking to us. If we know that Jesus is coming back to set everything right, if we know that the grave is not the end, we can keep going, can't we? I can endure. I can keep going. And that's why we need each other, you guys. Every now and then, we've got to be the one to pick up a brother or a sister and walk with them for a while. Say, hey, no, no, no. Keep your eyes over there. Even when we can't see, we've got somebody else to help us. Work of faith, labor of love, and steadfastness of hope. I think that's a good point to end on today. This has been largely an introduction to the book of Thessalonians. Now I'm able to refer back to some of these things, and you'll have heard them. And we'll be going slower through these books because the epistles, as you kind of see, even, even a couple of verses is really dense. There's so much you can talk about. But I just want to focus on this for now. Faith, hope, and love. Faith and love that produces good works for the Lord and for His people and the hope of heaven to keep us going. That's what kept the Thessalonians going, as we're going to see. Paul had given them minimal instruction. They were going through violent persecution, but they kept going. Why? Because they had the hope of the return of Jesus Christ. Even though they didn't get it, and they, they missed a lot of stuff, and they thought, you better not die, you'll miss the rapture. They, they had some bad understanding, but they got the hope. And sometimes we, with all of our doctrinal understanding and all of our training, we have less hope than people that have less instruction than we did. This is a tough year, you guys. And let me go ahead and say it. It may get worse. Who knows what could happen? There's no guarantee 2021 is going to be any better than 2020. But I hope you all can cling to the hope that we have in Christ and rejoice in your sufferings. What are you smiling for? Don't you know how bad this year is? Oh, I know the year's bad, but it just reminds me of what I've got coming for me. People don't want to talk about heaven. They want to talk about the here and now. Uh -huh. Try it in 2020 and see if they want to listen. People want to hear about heaven. And it's not a cop-out. It's real, right? We really believe that. Rejoice in your sufferings. Not only so that you can grow mature in Christ, because you need that, but also because there are others that have not yet found the grace and peace that only Christ can give. And your testimony could be exactly what they need.